Hey, good morning. I'm glad you made it here uh, through the snow and uh, the wind and the mire, but uh, welcome. Welcome those who are at Pleasant View. Welcome those who are in the chapel this morning. I uh, love you. Glad we get to worship together. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, you're beautiful to us. Thank you so much for the high honor of being able to worship you in your house, in your houses this morning. Thank you, Father, for the mighty move of God that has taken place in our world. Thank you for all those who will gather under a cross, under a name of Jesus Christ uh, in, the, in this day, on this day. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to look for and anticipate a mighty outpouring of your Holy Spirit across our land and across our world. We love you, Lord. Ask you to hide me deep in your cross. Prepare our hearts for whatever words you might have for us today in your name. Amen. Well, uh, this is the beginning of a new series, as you know. And so uh, I just kind of want to give you some heads up on that. Uh, I need to lay a theological groundwork today for the rest of the series. And so what that means is if you are into kind of theology and understanding theological pieces, uh, you're going to love this message. If you could care less about theology and you want to feel good, this may not be the right one, okay? This may not be the one that's going to make you feel absolutely awesome. And so, uh, but if you'll stay with me, I promise this will actually end up being important as the series plays out. But this, this morning, this topic will actually lay our basis or our foundation for everything that we're going to do in this series. It's a real important topic. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been granted access to something that you didn't belong in? or somewhere that you didn't belong, like somewhere you wouldn't normally get access to. But for some reason, some special invitation, you get to stand on the sidelines, or maybe you get to sit courtside. Because I had that opportunity this past week. Um, uh, some of the Clemson Furman football coaches invited me to kind of, me and Paul, over to tour Clemson's new football facility. It was one of the highlights of my week. And so I brought some pictures. They have this um, awesome outdoor wiffle ball field. Just wiffle ball. So this is all AstroTurf. It's a wiffle ball field. And this here is actually a, a, the beginning of an ocean they're putting in for the guys. And this is kind of, it's kind of a river right now. But we have this wiffle ball. They had miniature golf there. Uh, had their own outside basketball. And they, of course, they had their own bowling alley, which was absolutely amazing. And uh, it was this amazing place. One of my favorite rooms was they had a nap room. So if ever I get the opportunity to build another church, we are going to put in a nap room because I think everybody needs that. Um, it was this amazing place. One of the huge highlights for me was the slide. They have this huge slide. The maximum weight limit on the top said 400 pounds. Okay, that, that, that's the kind of slide we're dealing with. And if you've liked Alive's Facebook page, if you've done that, then you probably saw the video come across uh, your feed or whatever they call it these days. Uh, but if you haven't liked the page, I thought we would show you the video anyway of uh, going down the slide this week. <laughs> yeah, let's ride. That's one of the strength trainers. Yeah. So uh, I was talking to uh, I was talking to Michael Batson, who uh, actually is on the team and is playing on our percussions. He was saying at the end of their uh, before they head out to practice, all the guys hit the slide, and some of those guys, as you know, are northwards of 350 pounds. And he said they will go down 20 feet off the end of that slide, just just hit the hit the ground, just running. So while we were there, a couple of professional football players were working out in their in their weightlifting facility. One of the guys plays for the Colts, but I just saw this week he got traded to the Patriots, and the other the other for the uh, for the Buffalo Bills. It was such an honor to kind of talk to these guys and to kind of share you know how we both work out and um, you know what we max out at and that kinds of things. I mean, uh, there, there's no neck involved. You know, it's just 
just kind of, they're just mountains of men. And uh, man, we were kind of walking through this amazing complex and all these different machines. And um, they have these machines in the middle that you stand on. And all I can tell you is they're like these big vibration machines. And you stand on them and they loosen you up to prepare you to work out. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so we stood, so they said, hey, Tom, get on this, you know. And so we stood on top of that thing, and they got that thing going, man. And it was like, it was, it was this massive kind of vibrating thing. No kidding, when I got finished with the pre-workout, I needed a Gatorade. I mean, I was, I was sweating. I was like, oh, my goodness, I better sit down. This is just too much, you know. Now, one of the coaches who's a friend of mine came out, and he goes to our church, he greeted me, and then we went back, and poor Dabo was sitting at a conference room table, and he was having to sign a whole conference room table full of stuff, you know, for people. Everyone was very gracious, gracious and nice. But, but here's, here's, make no mistake, <laughs> have you ever been somewhere that you know you don't belong? <laughs> have you ever been somewhere that you know you do not belong? Because that's definitely where we were. That's how I felt as I toured that place. I mean, I saw the offensive coaches were in there, and they were doing their brainstorming session. A little bit further down the hall were the defensive coaches, and they're in another brain room session. Dabo signing away on the conference table. It was stunning, and I knew very little about all of it. I love the people because so many of them are engaged in our church, but to know their business, I was like this little kid. I was like, what does that machine do? What does that do? Why do you all do that? I'd been invited to, by friends into a place that I really didn't belong. And the reason I bring that to your attention is this. I think we all sort of function, if you will, in places that we, we belong and places that we don't belong. And we all sort of kind of define what those things are or discover what those things are. We have certain people groups we feel more comfortable in than we do other people groups. Fair? We have certain kind of situations we feel comfortable in than we do other situations. And many people have the exact same thought as they think about the church. People, people kind of will drive onto one of our campuses and they'll ask themselves this question. No doubt, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, they're asking, do I belong here? And sometimes they'll come up with a family, and so they'll be married and have young kids in the minivan, and they're driving up the hill or driving onto our campus. And what they're asking themselves is, will our family, does our family actually belong here? And sometimes when people go to a church, and the message they hear right away is this, no, you really don't belong here. That's a message that we sometimes inadvertently communicate, or maybe we intentionally communicate, I don't know, but no, you don't belong, belong here. See, what happens is churches can sort of be accepting of people that look like them and act like them, but, but not know what to do with people who are different than they are. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's sometimes the way churches can be. It's not because we're bad people or bad places, it's just sometimes our understanding of things communicates that sort of vibe. I belong here, but you don't. Now, what's interesting to me is from cover to cover, the Bible teaches acceptance of people first. And I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm not trying to make a statement. All I'm saying is when I read the scripture, it teaches acceptance of people first. Jesus always, always means 100% of the time did this. 
He connected with people first. He loved people despite behavior and despite beliefs. He just would overwhelm them with his love because Jesus understood a key idea for the church, if we're going to function in coming days, for the church to function on. And the key idea is this. Acceptance of the person will lead to behavior change because love always leads to heart transformation. Love will always lead. It's not, oh, here's my list of rules. If you want to be accepted by me, you follow this list of rules. That doesn't lead to heart transformation. That leads to behavior modification. That leads to chameleon-type behavior so I can fit in, but not heart transformation. Now, this dynamic of feeling like you belong or don't belong in church world is one of the two, is from one of two possible positions. See if you agree with what I'm saying. The dynamic that some people belong and some people don't belong comes from one of two places. The first area that I think it comes from from some of us is pride. Because, if, because pride believes that my performance merits my ability to be in God's presence. Pride says, I'm all that in a bag of chips. Of course these people are going to accept me. Of course that. I'm a good person. God is lucky actually to have me on his team. That's pride. That's pride. But the other position that's so common in church world and common with people we do life with and maybe common with some of you in the room is is actually despair. I don't belong in the church. I'm bad at being good. So God should avoid me. And to be honest, I should avoid God at all costs. I'm too far gone. I'm different than all these people. And I do not fit in here because I am a bad person. These are the two extremes that people have when it comes to whether or not they belong in church world. Now watch this. There are problems with both of these extremes. And I've tried to put it as succinctly as I know how. Here's the basic problem. If those of us in the room are prideful, we overestimate how good we are at following God and we underestimate God's rules. If we have despair... We overestimate the power of our sin and underestimate the power of God's mercy and grace in the face of our sin. You see, most of us live with this profound misunderstanding of God's love altogether. We think God loves us because he has to. It's sort of like Santa Claus. Santa Claus has to treat the children who've been good in nice ways. God has to treat us nice because it kind of goes with God. We think maybe God loves us, but to be honest, you're not really sure God likes us. Because we feel we're in this constant disappointment to God. And this is important because what we believe about God impacts what we believe about ourselves. So with that incredibly deep jump in let's go sort of thing in this series that we begin today it's sort of this attempt if you will to go behind the curtain of God it's this attempt to take our community that is alive to a place where many of us feel we don't belong to actually go behind the curtain and see God and and to have this discussion what we're going to do is we're going to use this book of Hebrews If you want to do something fun for this series, just read the book of Hebrews. Figure out a reading plan and read it for yourself over and over and over. 
in the New Testament, this little book of Hebrews, um, it's this strange book. And it's strange because we don't know who wrote it, and we're not sure who they wrote it to. It's this little book of Hebrews, but and, and people tend to avoid it because of all the issues that are sort of raised in this book. But there's a great deal of mysterious imagery in the book. But, but some of the most beautiful writing in the New Testament is actually in this book of Hebrews. If you want, now most people avoid Hebrews, and here's why. If you want to understand what Hebrews is all about, you pretty much have to know what the entire Old Testament is. Now, so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to kind of get, get victory. Of, no, no. I know that sounds incredible, da- incredibly daunting, that, that, but just stay with me. The entire storyline of the Old Testament and the entire storyline of the New Testament is actually the same. Now, don't just see if you agree with what I'm saying. I, I would sum it up with the, words, with the words, the kingdom of God. From the Old Testament, Genesis, to the book of Revelation, the whole plot line is this kingdom of God. It's the plot line of scripture. And here's how we might describe the kingdom of God. This isn't original with me, but I don't know who said it, so let's just take it as public information. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and God's blessing. Now pause, because I've been throwing a whole bunch of information at you this morning. Pause. Let's look at it again. Because if this is the kingdom of God, then this is an important thing for you and I to acknowledge in the room. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and God's blessing. You can use this, I think, as the understanding or hermeneutic to interpret all of Scripture. If you're trying to understand everything that's happening, this is God's plan. This is God's end goal. This is why Jesus prayed, our Father in heaven, how be in the name, your kingdom come. That's what Jesus prayed for, that this would happen, that this would take place. And if this is true, if this is the key to understanding the value and purpose of this life, then this changes absolutely everything, which leads to this question. Do you think it's true? You've got to answer it. Your mama can't answer it. Your grandma can't answer it. You have to answer it for yourself. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's what this whole existence is about? Is this what life is all about? Or is life all about that other thing that we've been pursuing? Getting wealthier, finding love, or whatever. Or is it this? The storyline of God's kingdom and how this actually plays out centers around one personality in Scripture. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the entire point of the Bible, which is this huge deal because Jesus allows us to have hope that this kingdom can actually come. Let me show you. Let me show you this from the theme verse for the series. We have this hope, Hebrews chapter 6. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, I just want to pause here long enough to note the words that I have highlighted here. You just think about your life. You just think about the things that keep you awake. You think about the things that cause you to worry or doubt yourself. Think about those things. 
What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. We have a hope, but this hope isn't kind of like wanderlust, tumbleweed. No, the words it says is this hope is actually an anchor that is firm and secure. It doesn't drift. It's not going anywhere. It's as steadfast and sure you can count on it. Here's the hope. We have this hope. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. Now, friends, this is absolutely huge. And I've been praying all week that somehow God would give me the words to share the full implications of what this means for us. Now, because there's a phrase that was used here When you and I say they know their ABCs, that's a very common thing. We all understand it. Well, there's a phrase that is used here that the Hebrew people would have understood as their ABCs. It's this phrase, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. They understood that just like you and I understand common things in our language. But for them, this was everyday vernacular. So spend a few minutes with me thinking about what this means. And let me just take you some Old Testament history. Are you ready? Come on, people. I need some encouragement. So here we go. Here we go. So Abraham's descendant ends up in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Everybody's seen the movie. Everybody understands that, right? So that's what happens. The Hebrews are descendants of Abraham, and they are led out of Egypt by a guy named Moses. Moses leads the people into the promised land. This is all part of God's kingdom plan. But while the people are left Egypt and they're meandering and wandering around in the wilderness, before they get to the promised land, God has two agendas that he wants to teach the people. He wanted to communicate to the people a couple of things. You were slaves, you're descendants of Abraham, you were slaves, and now I am pulling you out, putting you in the wilderness, and I have two lessons for you while you're here. First, God wanted to teach the people of Israel that he would always be with them. I'm always with you. I'm not going anywhere. You may step away from me, but I'm not going anywhere. And so he wanted to put this daily reminder before the people of his presence. And so he did that. You can read this in scripture. God's kingdom come. The daily presence was this. The people of Israel were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God I am always with you, he is saying. And the Hebrews did then what we all do. Even though they saw a cloud and a pillar of fire, they messed up. They rejected God's kingdom ideas, God's kingdom principles. They weren't sure they wanted God's kingdom to come at all. And the Bible calls these things sin. And whenever there is sin, there is always consequence. The consequence of sin in the whole cosmic reality, for some reason, is death. And the people of Israel sinned over and over and over and over again, just like I do and just like you do. And you would think that God would just outright, outright reject them. Do away with the pillar of cloud, do away with the pillar of fire, but he doesn't. But we still have this sin problem. So the first thing God says is, I'm with you. And here comes the second thing God wanted to teach the people of Israel as he led them out of Egypt. Sin is actually keeping us from God. 
The sin problem has to be dealt with. So God instructs Moses to build this tabernacle. Literally means a dwelling, an abiding place. It was this tent that would would rather become the temple once the people entered the promised land. So the people of Israel come out of Egypt. Here's the pillar of cloud. Here's the pillar of fire. God is always with you, but you've got this problem, and it's sin. And sin is keeping us apart, God says. And so he says, I want you to design and build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle basically looked something like this. This is a Google Earth view. No, I'm just kidding. This is just kind of a diagram for us to sort of know what's actually happening. Listen, stay with me on this. The outer courts, that's this area out here, this is available to everybody. Whoever wanted to go into the outer courts was welcome in the outer courts. Sacrifices were offered out there. That kind of took place. But once you got past the outer courts, you went into this inner place called the holy place. Now, here's the thing. Most of us were not allowed in the holy place. The holy place is just where people that were priests were allowed. The tribe of Levi, some of those people were allowed in the holy place. But even beyond the holy place, so we have the outer courts, everybody's welcome. Holy place, just some of the priests. But then we have this holy of holy, or the most holiest of places. And the most holy place, only one priest was allowed, the high priest. And only the high priest once a year was actually allowed to go into the holy of holies on, that, on a day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement went something like this. The priest would sacrifice a bull for his own sin. And then he would take some of the blood from the bull, and he would then sprinkle that all the way in here. He would ultimately sprinkle that bull, the blood of the bull, into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on what's called the mercy seat in that room. Stay with me. Just stay with me. So once a year, he would receive mercy for his own sin. Now just let that think in, sink in on you just a minute. Once a year, the high priest would receive mercy for his sin. Sacrifice the bull and then would go in here and sprinkle that on the mercy seat, hoping to receive mercy for his own sin. Once that was done, the high priest then moved to care for the sins of the people. So the priest would then take two goats and he would take the first goat and sacrifice the goat just as he did the bull. And then he would take the blood of the goat and sprinkle some of the blood of the goat on the mercy seat in order to receive mercy for the sins of the people. Theological word for this is called substitutionary atonement. What it means is this. The people deserve death because of their sin and the rejection of God's kingdom. But animals acted as this substitute so the people could receive mercy. So let me just pause and at this point give you this take this takeaway. This is what God wanted us to know. Apparently my sin creates a debt that has to be paid. Everybody in the room, everybody you drove by, everybody in your family, everybody you've ever known, and certainly all the people of Israel, the sin creates a debt that has to be paid. In other words, this, friends, God cannot wink at my sin. God can't say, oh, it's okay, son. He can't rub my head and say, okay, let's move forward. There's an actual problem that has to be set right. 
there's an actual situation for some reason in God's world that has to be set right. And all of the sacrifices that were made, a bull and a goat, were imperfect sacrifices. They never were perfect. They never would last. They were not sufficient. They were symbolic. You follow what I'm saying? They were not a sufficient sacrifice. They were symbolic. Because one day God would have to provide a perfect sacrifice. I mentioned there were two goats. The first goat was sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The second goat was actually called the scapegoat. And the priest would lay his hands on the goat in his very public ceremony and would confess all of the sins on the camp. And then the community would sort of send the goat out into the camp with the shame of the, or out of the camp with the shame of the camp. Again, there's a theological word for this. It's called expiation or the removal of shame. Now, this is a big deal because shame is a player in our lives. In fact, next week is all about shame. Back to this whole system. In the Old Testament, behind the curtain, let me see if I can actually get there. In the Old Testament, behind this curtain is where God actually dwelled. That's hard for you and I to comprehend. It's hard for you and I to understand. I get that. But in the Old Testament system, pre-Jesus, pre-Holy Spirit, pre-Holy Spirit actually in our hearts and lives, this is where God actually dwelled. It was this no access point. Nobody's allowed to go back there. You don't belong there. I don't belong there. And generations of people lived with this reality. Nobody goes back there to be with God. That's where God is. And sin has separated the people from God. So the hope of the people was that one day, somehow, in some plan, there would be a perfect sacrifice. The point of the entire scripture is the kingdom of God come. Who's the point of the entire scripture? Jesus is the point of the entire scripture. Jesus is our high priest, and this is taught specifically 12 different times in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, same verse, next, next, same, same section, next verse. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What's the hope? For generations and generations and generations, there has been imperfect hope. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtains, and now you know exactly what curtain we're talking about. Where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. No more blood of bulls, no more blood of goats. Perfect sacrifice. Entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Everybody say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Isn't that a good word? Let's say it again. Melchizedek. Stay with me. Now let me show you something that's really, really cool. This whole Melchizedek figure is, is really just, it's, it's a marvel to study. Um, Melchizedek is actually a priest and a king. The first time you see Melchizedek was when he met Abraham. You follow? Father of the Hebrew people. He meets Abraham. Melchizedek was a king of a place called Salem. 
Salem later would be called Jerusalem. Follow? So Salem means peace. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of peace and righteousness. He is a priest and a king. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, Melchizedek is pointing to another high priest, a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek named Jesus. And that's what the book of Hebrews is trying to teach us. It says it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I highlight radiance because it's the only time that word is used in all of scripture. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, no bull, no goat, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is called, friends, here, the Son of the Father. His radiance, only used for this moment in the entire Bible. This is huge. If you want to know the Father that sits behind the curtain, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because Jesus is our high priest now who takes us behind the curtain. And he does so, friends, perfectly and completely. Finally. And now it is finished. It's why the scriptures say Jesus sat down at the right hand of, the ma- of his majesty in heaven. This is a done deal. The sacrifice has been made once for all, Hebrew says. Complete. Sufficient. And what that means for you is this. Because of Jesus' sacrifice and through Jesus' sacrifice, you always belong in the presence of God. We always belong in the presence of God. And I can hear some of you, but Tom, you don't know, I don't care. Because it's not that you're perfect, it's that the sacrifice was perfect. And so you can always belong in the presence of God. Whereas the high priest had to do this every year, Jesus came, did it once for all, and then dropped the mic. And our takeaway for me is this. When Jesus takes us behind the curtain, a place we don't belong, he actually shows us an entirely different understanding of God. And I would suggest it's very much like a good father. Do you know what a good father looks like behind the curtain? That's what this whole series is going to be about. We're going to see a father who won't abandon his children behind the curtain. We're going to see a father who doesn't care if Tom blows it over and over and over and over again. He doesn't care if Tom blows it in a major way. Because God won't abandon his children. God is faithful to his people so much so that he provides that perfect sacrifice at great personal cost 
which I'm going to tell you more about as we head into Easter. Just so you and I might actually be one with him and be allowed behind the curtain. No more divide, no more boundaries, no more places we don't belong. No, actually, we, we now belong with God. We see a father who won't abandon his children. We see a father who provides a place that he can live with his children. Keep in mind the plot of Scripture. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and God's blessing. Friends, this is the entire plan. As you chart out a course for your life or chart out for your job or the organizations you lead, it certainly should involve the kingdom of God come. That's the plan, friends. As Lisa and I think about our world and our finances and our influence, the kingdom of God must be central. It's the entire plan. I don't know what the plan for your life is specifically, but I do know where all of this ends. At the end of the great story of Scripture, the plot sort of climaxes with these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling tabernacle temple of God is with his people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's where this thing ends. This is what it ends, friends. You want to know the whole goal? You want to know what your future looks like? There it is. Apparently somewhere, somehow, in the future, you and I Walk and talk with God as God desired and did in the Garden of Eden. We see a father who provides a place that he can live with his children. We see a father who protects his children. We're going to see this behind the curtain. We see a father who says, you cannot touch them unless you get approval from me. Come on, come on, dad, speak up. You cannot touch my children. No, you may not. If you're going to, you're going to have to run through me first. That's this God. You think that came from some John Wayne movie? That came because the image of God is in you. You ever seen a mama bear get worked up about her kid? <sighs> yes. Well, that's actually the image of God. You cannot get to my children. I'm not saying, make no mistake, I am not saying that we never hurt. I'm not saying nobody ever gets sick, nobody experiences pain. But I am saying my heavenly Father will protect me and guide me into his kingdom. There, that is where this ends for me and ends for you. The world and what happens to this body, so be it. It is what it is. But make no mistake. When it comes to where this whole thing ends and I am in God's kingdom and he is in me and we are walking together, I have no fear, no uncertainty. God's kingdom would come because this is my home and the home for all of his children, including you. Jesus did this on the cross. Jesus provides the perfect sacrifice so I could be protected and enter behind the curtain even though I'm a sinful man. We're going to see a father who loves to give incredible gifts to his children. It's going to rock your world, some of you. I'm amazed at how often theological conversations I have with people about God have to do with things they are doing to try to earn God's love. 
I'm amazed at the amount of things people give up or people stop doing in some, some, I think, useless attempt to earn favor from God. But if you actually go with us through this series behind the curtain, you're going to find a God who wants to give you rest. Just let that one sink all over you. Rest. I'm not talking about a nap. I'm talking about rest. You're going to see a God who wants to make you clean. You're going to see a God who invents and then figures out how to distribute mercy and grace. You're going to see a God who looks down at my life and says, Tom, I can give you a better way to live. You're going to see a God who looks down at my life and sees all the screw-ups of my life and says, I can actually redeem those, Tom, and you can live in a different way. You're going to see a God who wants to give you a new kind of confidence, a new kind of belief. You're going to see a God who wants to teach you faith, a God who wants to give you hope, a God that wants to give you a kingdom that cannot, will not, shut up, be shaken. That's what you're going to see. That's what this God is trying to teach us. And I wonder if we sort of have moved beyond and are missing it. Listen, God can't love us any more than he currently does. Do you understand that? God cannot love you more than he currently does because he's a good father. What you and I do does not impact whether or not God loves us, friends. You don't think, well, God loved me today because I was in church, but he didn't love me Friday night because of what I did. That's simply not true. God can't love you more than he currently does because he's a good father. And you're going to see this behind the curtain. It doesn't matter what we do or have done. God's love stays faithful and stays consistent. You can rest in that. It's not that God loves Christians more than he loves the rest of the planet. That's the furthest thing from the truth. God loves all people. Of course he does. He made them. He doesn't make some people and say, oh, they're good. They're Christians. And these people, oh, mess those people up. Well, too bad. That's not God. You can rest in God's love of you. My children will never be able to scrub away all vestiges of my love for them. No matter what they do, no matter if they get turned sideways with me or they don't like me or whatever, they will never be able to scrub away the vestiges of my love for them. Come on, give me a moment. I love those kids. I'll do anything for those kids. But here's the thing. I'm a fallen man. So just imagine how the good father who has perfect love, who is perfectly faithful, is able to love you. You want to see God? Look to Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you'll see God's intentions for you. And Jesus will take us behind the curtain and what we're going to discover there, friends, what we're going to discover behind that curtain has the potential to change the trajectory of not just your life, but the trajectory of your entire family. Dare I say, the trajectory of this entire community. Because what's behind the curtain is movement-making stuff. And so I pray that you will join me in prayer. And let's take this journey 
It's uncomfortable and it's difficult. But let's take the journey and discover the good father behind the curtain. Lord, thank you for these people. Thank you for their grace. Thank you for the high honor of being able to share with them what you've been challenging my heart with in the past few weeks. And I pray as we begin the series, Lord, that um, you would begin sowing seeds right now. And that for some of us, the, the God behind the curtain will be so different than the God we've been serving. For some of us, Lord, we're going we're gonna to have to repent of pride. For some of us, we're going to have to get over our despair and discover that there's a God behind the curtain who cannot wait for us to be in his presence. And the whole plan, Lord, that one day we will all walk with you. Your kingdom will come and you will dwell and tabernacle with your people. Oh, man, Lord. And you've actually given us kind of a, kind of a day of that as the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us today. And to think about what that will be when your kingdom comes. And so, Father, we just continue to pray for that as a community. Your kingdom come in my heart, in my life. I pray that for everybody within the sound of my voice. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And, Father, I pray that through all of this experience, through all of this time, as we kind of pack up the whole curtain series and head on to the next one, I pray that the understanding that we have a good Father who wants to be with His people, who wants to give good gifts, who is incredibly faithful, I pray that understanding would allow us to fall more in love with you than we ever have before your kingdom come in your name.